During this retreat, I've been giving a series of talks on happiness. And tonight I want to give the concluding talk in that series on the happiness of peace. I think the Buddha meant the Eightfold Path to be a path to happiness. In it, there are three trainings. The training in ethical conduct for purification of our behavior. The training in samadhi or concentration for the purification of our mind. And the training in panya or wisdom for the purity of our understanding. All three of these trainings aim to purify our mind of defiling tendencies, those tendencies of mind which distort our perception of life. The defilements of greed, hatred, delusion, in any of their forms. And the Buddha identified three degrees of manifestation of these unskillful tendencies of mind. The most gross form of defiled mind or expression of the defiled mind is what is called transgressive defilements, where we speak or act in a very crude and harmful way. Secondly, there are the defilements that go no further than our mind, but they obsess our mind. And we discover quite a lot of that as we sit in silence and see that though we may not be acting harmfully, we may be obsessed with thoughts to do so. And thirdly, a very subtle form of the presence of such tendencies in um, latent in all of our (coughs) experience. So that when conditions arise, if they're extreme enough, if they push us to our limit, then we will find that our mind too can be corrupted. So we have the latent or the dormant potential of defilements, the obsessive defilements in the mind, and the transgressive defilements when we act or speak from a distorted mind. The talks that I've been giving on happiness have each included a practice which directly speaks to these different degrees of defilements so that we could see that the practice of generosity or dana, the practice of giving, directly speaks to the transgressive defilement of greed. The practice of ethical conduct, practicing sila, living by precepts, caring for the sensitive heart of ourself and others, directly speaks to or opposes the transgressive defilements of hatred. Samadhi, or the development of the pure mind, that jewel beyond all price, speaks directly or tends to oppose all three, greed, hatred, and delusion. And when metta, or loving-kindness, is developed to deep absorptions, deep states of concentration, it powerfully banishes 
any defilements from the mind temporarily. It's only when we practice insight, when we practice vipassana, the seeing things the way they are, that we begin to do the work necessary to uproot the latent tendencies in our mind. Other practices can temporarily oppose and put aside defiling or unskillful behaviors and thoughts. But it's only with insight that we're able to discover the way the mind works so that we can begin to uproot that hidden or uh, dormant potential within us all. So when the Buddha said, there is no higher happiness than peace, he was pointing to the happiness that results from the peace of understanding. And that happiness is the fulfillment of the Eightfold Path. When, through insight, we can permanently uproot unwholesome tendencies from the mind. Here, we begin to see the nature of our mind and body more clearly, more precisely, more carefully, more sensitively. And not just the momentary nature of the mind and the body, but we begin to see more deeply into the characteristics, the nature of all experience. We begin to see that all experience is impermanent when we can notice one moment's experience after the other. And we see that each experience is discrete in its own way, in its own time. We also notice that much experience is unpleasant. And often in the early stages of practice, which can be several years, there's a lot of pain, mental and physical pain and discomfort in the body, in the mind. And often, we may have to note it several times, and it may not ever disappear, or seemingly so. But what we discover as we sit through hours, days, weeks of this mind and body, that any avoidance of pain creates more in its own way. And it sometimes seems that the practice really leads us to an exquisite painfulness in everything that we experience. The impermanence, the unsatisfactory nature of experience, we also see that the mind and the body are out of control. We can't control what we experience. We can't make it come, and we can't make it go. And we really see that this mind-body process is impersonal. And that insight 
can be terrifying because we can't do anything about it. And we react with apathy, with restlessness, with fear, with whatever emotion we can, and yet the fact remains. We can't control it. We resist seeing the truth of anicca, anatta, and dukkha because it is contrary to everything we've been led to believe up to this point. And so it's usually quite a long period of time where we have to confront this knowledge in our practice. Where the experience of the mind and the body is anicca, anatta, and dukkha. But not only each experience, our sense of ourself also is anicca, impermanent, anatta, and certainly dukkha. Not only the objects, not only our sense of ourself, but practice even becomes dukkha. Practice is out of control. Practice is impermanent. And when we see this, when we really get in there and start digging around in our experience, it really brings on a tremendous deflation of our sense of ourself and loss of self-esteem. When the practice seems boring, unsatisfactory, and we're not at all sure that it actually works. This leads us all to doubt, confusion, blaming, anger, tremendous self-judgment, ingratitude, fault-finding. And we discover this when our fellow yogis become fairly constant sources of irritation and distraction. Teachers too sometimes. This period of practice when we're really just beginning to see these characteristics in all of our experience prompts tremendous thought and reflection and reconsideration And it seems that many of us spend a great deal of time doing a personal history scan and re-looking at our life up to this point and beyond in terms of Vinicca, Anatta, and Dukkha. And after we get some facility at letting go of that, coming back to the present, letting go of it again, coming back to the present. We can often come across a strong desire to just quit, to just stop the practice and get out of it here, now. But something about this insight is compelling. And we'll still search for experience that confirms what we've heard, what we've taught. And here we could say is the stage where begun is what has had to be begun. Because this initial glimpse of the truth of the Dhamma and the wisdom of the Buddha brings increasing confidence in the Buddha's teaching and the Dhamma. And many of our reflections confirm the accuracy of these teachings. And there is, in fact, a deep letting go of the sense of ourself. And with practice, 
with increasing diligence, we can begin to let go of these reflections, let go of this um, life history review, and begin to stay in the present a little more, a little more continuously, and actually be with the mind and the body in each moment as it appears in the mind. Beginning to see the constant fluxing nature of momentarily arising phenomena. In doing so, the speed with which we're able to recognize experience picks up considerably. And there's a certain joy that comes with that continuity and clarity of insight. And at times, the noting can be quite good, quite continuous, quite steady. Dare I say, enjoyable. But sometimes, indeed, we do find something in our practice which is enjoyable, which is pleasurable, which gives us a sense of accomplishment or satisfaction. And it's at this place of clarity, this place of the continuity of seeing events appearing in the mind, that we begin to have fantastic experiences of calm, actually, of tranquility, of maybe a little joy, a little clarity, a little mindfulness, a little equanimity. And we see them flash by or maybe stay for a while in our sittings. And sometimes these experiences can be so powerful, can be so special, can be so unique, can be so unusual in their scope and intensity that we think, aha, this is it. I've got it. And this is a classic experience in practice. And we all have flickers of it to some degree or other. So I want to identify a few of these experiences which can become roadblocks to further understanding. And the first of these experiences is when we begin to experience lights in our practice. And some people experience flickering lights, steady lights, bright lights, dim lights, with their eyes closed. Feeling that the room is lit up when the room is actually dark. Or seeing light emanating from themselves or others. And it happens occasionally. And because the experience is so unfamiliar, so unusual, we often get quite excited or uh, moved by it. This can lead to quite a lot of joy, quite a lot of rapture, where the body becomes thrilled with our experience. Where there's thrills and and tremors and uh, maybe shaking or rocking, uh, vibrating in the body. Sometimes it can lead to a feeling of extreme well-being where the body can feel very light, as if something extraordinary is going to happen. And some yogis come in to report that they feel they're just on the edge of something, about to happen. And sometimes even we can believe that this experience itself is the Dhamma breakthrough we've been looking for, hoping for, but not yet. Sometimes, too, the mind, the body can become so calm and so still that there's really no need to make effort. 
where the body seems to be relaxed and perfectly straight in its posture without any effort, as if lifted by some power or some energy or some guiding hand from above. Where the mind stays still is light and pliable. And there's a feeling of being okay. Everything is okay in this stillness. It's impossible not to feel happy with this experience. There's a sense of euphoria, of gladness, inexpressible and unsuppressible gladness. Without any apparent cause, we feel as if we're sitting on top of the world. When any of these experiences appear in the mind, we can believe that the teaching and the practice indeed is all it's meant to be, all it's said to be. And our confidence and strength of conviction can soar through the roof. And we can find ourselves filled with expressions of gratitude, appreciation, longing to do further practice, and great praise for others who practice the Dhamma. Such confidence, a result of good practice, can become a hindrance or an obstruction to further practice. It happens too that when the continuity is maintained and the clarity is heightened, mindfulness takes a quantum leap into being spontaneously present moment to moment where nothing escapes our attention. And this can happen for a brief period of time. I'm not talking about something that lasts all day. I'm talking about something that can last for a few minutes where we get this heightened mindfulness and we know that everything appearing in the mind and body is being noticed. Nothing escapes our attention. With such mindfulness, the clarity with which we understand the truth of anicca, anatta, and dukkha is clear, precise, and immediate. And we can understand, we can see that these special effects that are happening, this tranquility, this joy, these lights, this mindfulness, calmness, happiness, they're not my doing. But there's some power in the Dhamma revealing itself. And our energy can be balanced in the body and in the mind where we experience full, vigorous energy without making any effort. And we can get the feeling that I could sit all day. With such energy, the equanimity and the balance of mind is exquisite. Where the mind stops reacting to the pleasant and painful experiences in the mind and body, it also stops reacting to our judgments of ourself. And our judgments of our practice. Where we really feel that distance or that disidentification from our body, from our mind,
from our thoughts, from our judgments. And it's a real cool balance that we can sometimes be led mistakenly to believe is the fruit or the end of practice. All of these experiences, they come as a result of good practice. But as soon as they come, if they're not noted, they become an obstruction, a hindrance to practice. Oftentimes, it's critical with these experiences to have someone present to point out to you the unnoted experience. Not only the unnoted pleasure of joy, tranquility, equanimity, mindfulness, but the sense of gratification and satisfaction we take in it. Because it's that unnoted sense of satisfaction that solidifies the clinging and the not letting go of that experience. And it's only when we recognize that these experiences too are anicca, anatta, and dukkha because of their impermanence that we're able to note them and get on with further practice. When we don't indulge in these special effects and that sense of accomplishment. And to do that we need to note and maintain our diligence for longer periods of time. Sitting longer, walking longer, and maintaining the continuity. And with that recommitment of our energy to noting each and every momentary event, gradually the special effects will decrease and we'll let go of our sense of attainment. When the noting becomes easy, the experiences become clearly arising and passing away. Where the mind remains alert and the energy and concentration come into balance. The wisdom and confidence come into balance. When these controlling faculties of energy and concentration, confidence and wisdom come into balance, then we're able to settle back and just watch the flow of everything, including these special effects, arise and pass away, arise and passing away. And it happens sometimes that there is a rather dramatic shift in our perceptual experience when after a relatively stable period of clarity and ability to identify our experience, suddenly it's as if we're back at day one. Can't maintain our continuity, can't find the object, don't know what's happening, feel like we're wandering all over the place, and we can think, and we will think, I've lost my concentration, I've done something wrong. When objects become obscure, dispersive, empty, when they just drop out of the mind before we can get to them, the feeling tone, the experience, is as if we're not noting very well. But what's happening is our rate of noticing has picked up. So much so that we're just barely catching experience as they fly by. And we don't really identify what they are other than to know that something has gone by. And so our conceptual understanding of what we're experiencing vanishes. 
And we know that we're present. We know that we're experiencing something, but we don't know what. Hard to label. Really hard to label. And so we have to let go. Paradoxically, it's as if we're trying to observe something that isn't there. And yet we still know that we've observed something. It can be a very frustrating time in practice because the noting feels very dull, dispersive, fragmented, and it just feels like we're not getting anywhere. Worse than the first day. And often we can feel giddy and dizzy and lose a sense of balance or have a sense of losing our balance. And when we walk sometimes, the floor can seem to be undulating or moving under us because our perceptions are so quick that we can't hold anything steady. Because these experiences are so unfamiliar and they're so unexpected so far into the retreat, almost universally yogis fall into despair that they're just not getting anywhere. But with some encouragement, hopefully, you'll be able to continue and to note what you can in such experiences. And particularly to note our relationship to the experience. The experience itself is not so important, but our emotional relationship to it is. Because we sometimes fall into fear, sometimes fall into confusion, or frustration, or disappointment, maybe joy. It's the nature of our relationship to experience which binds us to it. And as we learn to note more continuously again, our reactions to these disappearing experiences, the noting will again become smooth, continuous, and we'll begin to have more equanimity in relation to this unsettling experience. And with the development of equanimity, when the equanimity builds up, again, the speed of noting increases, becomes more rapid, and the characteristics of impermanence of dukkha and anatta become continuously evident. And we can actually feel when equanimity is strongly developed that we're just sitting just to know what's going on. Knowing this experience just to know for no other reason. We begin to uh, give up our sense of ever getting or even wanting anything particular from practice. We've seen all the uh, special effects And we've seen all the uh, nature of dukkha. And so neither one holds out much, um, doesn't hold out much for us. And so we're really willing to let go, drop back into equanimity, and just watch things go by. And that's really the quality that gets developed when we get tired enough of reacting when we finally worn ourselves out from toing and froing, then we just sit back and watch it go. When we can do that, we don't delight anymore in the pleasant experience. And we don't fear or resist anymore the unpleasant. Where the mind stays 
still. Whether it's a thought of the future, a thought of the past, a present experience of the body, they're all noted with indifference. Pain and pleasure make no difference. Whether it's the extraordinary, peaceful, sublime calm, or what was once considered excruciating pain. When the mind is not reacting, there's really no difference between them. When equanimity gets developed, we stop claiming experience as mine. Not from an intentional pushing away, letting go, or trying to believe it's not mine, and not from a suppression or repression of that feeling, but it's not mine due to insight, due to clearly seeing the inherent characteristic of each experience as its own, arising in the mind due to impersonal conditions. With such equanimity, we can note for longer periods of time, maybe even half or most of a sitting, or even longer, when we can sit for an hour or two or more without even knowing it. And sometimes, some yogis have reported that sometimes they sit down and they start noting. And in a minute or two, the bell rings and the sitting's over. And they think, well, something's wrong. I'll just keep sitting. And the bell rings and the people come back in the hall. And it's only been a couple of minutes. And so they sit through the next sitting. When equanimity is really strong like that, time is insignificant. It doesn't matter what the experience is. It's just passing through. Let it come. Let it go. One of my teachers in Burma told me that at this stage of his practice, one time, just to see if he could, he stayed awake for 15 days, just noting, without any harmful effects to his body or mind. The mind is really light. The mind has power, has capabilities beyond what you may believe. And as the equanimity develops, it's almost impossible to, at times, even think of anything other than what's happening and not thinking about it, but experiencing it. So that we can even try to call to mind a memory, a thought, a plan, and it won't stick. It won't hold. It can come to mind, but we can't keep it there. It just passes away. Because we can't develop an attachment or an aversion to it. The equanimity is so strong. Needless to say, this is another place in practice when we experience such equanimity and the subtlety of the flow of experience through the mind and the body and the subtle nature of the body's experience, so soft, so light, so um, ephemeral, so intangible even, that this is another place we can believe, I've got it, that I've really reached the end of the Buddha's path. But again, not here, not yet. And in fact, when such thoughts or such reflections or such, such considerations come to the mind, they too need to be noted. For any of you who have thoughts 
like that. Please note, thinking, thinking. Let it come, let it go. The quality of mind of one who can dwell in equanimity for a period of time. For the period of time that equanimity is strong, their mind is really like that of a fully enlightened being who has no attachments and no aversions, no clinging, but merely is present with the stream of psychophysical phenomena as it passes by. Noting needs to be maintained continuously, precisely, with equanimity also. Or we can fall into a complacency and a contentment with the subtlety of experience. But with repeated arisings and appearances in the mind, when there is no reaction, when the mind dwells in equanimity and there is no reaction, each time that we notice without reacting, it's as if we chip off a piece of our conditioning. And in time, that conditioning or the conditioned tendency to react becomes very thin, extremely thin. The sense of ourself can become non-existent. And it's when the mind comes into a really exquisite balance of non-reactivity that it can leap to the unconditioned. Equanimity allows our sense of ourself, all objects, to be seen with such clarity that we can, we are led to that radical letting go, where the mind can leap to that which is previously unknown, that which has no words to describe it, in the cessation of the mind and the body. When the mind leaps to the unconditioned, there is a permanent letting go of the defiling tendencies of mind in stages. And this leap can only occur when the mind is calm, clear, peaceful, serene. And the clarity with which anicca, anatta, and dukkha is known is exquisite and shattering. Where our sense of the familiar is destroyed. And this moment occurs without direction or conscious intent. And the moment passes and the changes to the stream of consciousness are permanent. Tendencies of unwholesomeness permanently uprooted from the stream of consciousness. This condition or this experience, the supreme silence, has no signs, no color, no shape, no words to describe it. The cessation of mind and body becomes the object for, con- for consciousness. Anything we know of the mind or body ceases to exist. This leap to the unconditioned, this, this enlightenment, so to speak, is a specific event. It has a time, 
It has a place. There's a sequence to it. It's not a vague mystical experience. It's known. And the post-unconditioned experience is dwelling in waves of exquisite dhamma bliss, where the faith and the confidence are unshakable, where the body and mind feel a subtle happiness never felt before, where extraordinary serenity can last for hours or days. And the body can be light or even non-existent. And they say that as one develops insight into these three characteristics and learns the leap to the unconditioned, that the defilements are uprooted piecemeal in stages. In the first stage, they say, is when the mind finally has let go of the belief in a self and has no further doubt about practice, about the possibility of awakening, and about the truth of the fact that people actually do it. When one's confidence in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha is unshakable, then the mind can let go of that belief in a self forever. And it won't reappear under any condition. They say at the second um, level of accessing the unconditioned that no defiling tendencies of mind are uprooted, but greed and aversion are severely uh, limited so that no gross forms of greed or aversion would arise any further. A third stage is when one totally uproots all attachment or craving for sensory experience and also uproots the tendency to aversion in any situation. Needless to say, such a mind has got to be pretty focused. It's got to be pretty concentrated. And the third stage of uh, this awakening, they say, is based on concentration, where the first two stages are based on sila, or ethical conduct. But still, that's not the end. That's not the peace that the Buddha was talking to, talking about. There's a fourth stage when one, as the texts say, totally uproots the remaining tendencies in the mind based on ignorance, which is the highest goal in Buddhist practice, in the Buddhist teaching. When one has uprooted the tendency to attach or cling to jhanas, either form or formless jhanas, where conceit, ignorance, restlessness, sloth and torpor, all are banished from the mind. And it's such a person, then, who can say, done is what had to be done. I read a description of the ideal type, the arahant in the Buddhist um, system of, of things. And one who has so perfected their mind, so purified their 
mind and their understanding is one who lives without greed for desires, for sense desire, one who has no need for approval or pleasure or praise, does not cling to dogmatisms, has no desire for anything for themselves other than what is essential and necessary, who has no aversion to loss, to disgrace, to pain, to blame, has no anger, no fear, no resentment, nor anxiety, but lives with an ongoing alertness, calm delight in ordinary and boring experiences, with quick and accurate perceptions, impartial equilibrium towards all, openness and responsive to others with a strong compassion and loving kindness, skillful and composed in action. And the Buddha said, when craving and anger and delusion are given up, one experiences no mental pain nor grief. This is Nibbana, visible in this very life immediately visible, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. This Nibbana, this extinction of all defilements, is called the unborn, the deathless, the unmade, timeless, unchanging, inexpressible, peace. It's this that the Buddha is pointing to in his teaching. The happiness of peace. The happiness of giving up greed, hatred, and delusion. There is no higher happiness than this. should sit for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.